Good morning, church family. Our scripture reading this morning is found in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. That's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, and we're reading through to chapter 2, verse 4. Will you follow along as I read God's word? In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of God. 
It's a privilege to be with you this morning, and I want to thank this church and its leaders for supporting uh, the Toronto Baptist Seminary. And um, we are grateful to have Debbie, who is one of the members here and involved in the work, been involved in the seminary for so many years. Let's take a moment and pray as we turn to the scriptures. Our Father, we thank you for the word you have given us, and we pray that you would instruct us. We pray that you would give us attentive hearts, that we would not only be hearers, but doers of your word. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. On the 24th of this month, NASA commenced a study of foreign objects flying in the air, unknown foreign objects. We used to call them UFOs. And they want to learn more about these unknown flying objects. Now, much of the knowledge that we have gained as a species, we have gained through experimentation, through scientific discoveries. But the knowledge of God cannot be gained by probes into, sp into space, nor can it be gained by experimentations in laboratories. God must reveal himself. The infinite God cannot be found by finite minds. And so scripture affirms repeatedly that God has spoken. And it is this word of God that I want to concentrate upon in your hearing today. That God has spoken. This is one of the major themes in the book of Hebrews. Here the apostle or the writer, he's unknown, writes to us and writes particularly to a congregation that was Jewish and Christian in composition but had begun to wander from the faith. They were suffering persecution for their faith. They were under great hardship. And as they suffered, perhaps even from the time of Claudius in the first century, they, they had begun to question whether it was worth it in following Christ. And, and of course, many of them had come from Judaism, so Judaism appeared much more attractive than the Christian faith that had now drawn unwelcome, at least, attention from the authorities and from their neighbors. And so the writer reminds them that Jesus Christ, whom they have received, is better. And so there is this refrain throughout Hebrews that says he's better than the old covenant prophets, better than angels, better than Moses and Aaron and the entire Levitical system of the Old Testament. And as he proclaims Jesus Christ, who is the great high priest, and I suspect that that is the theme of Hebrews, the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, the one who is sufficient for our sins, that there is this theme that runs through Hebrews that is God has spoken in his word. It is a major theme. There are only four times in Hebrews 
where we have the expression, the word of God. But there are multiple references to synonyms of the word of God, like God speaking, God bearing witness, or taking an oath. Many of these could be numbered, more than 40 references to the speaking God. I want us to look then at the word of God spoken. First of all, as you read in the first paragraph, in the first four verses of chapter 1, as it speaks regarding the word of God, it reminds us of God's climactic word in the Son. He stresses in verses 1 to 4, in this very long sentence, in fact, it is one sentence in the original. It is carefully crafted, and it reminds us that in the past, God spoke to the ancients, spoke to the fathers, through the prophets, in various ways, in diverse means, perhaps referring to the fragmentary way in which revelation came, in diverse and different ways, makes us understand that the old covenant prophets and teachers did not receive the fullness of divine revelation. They received it periodically. It was episodic. It was fragmentary. It was incomplete. And so he, he places these bifurcation in salvation history. There in the past, God was speaking through the prophets, not through the new Assyrian prophets or the pagan prophets around, but through the Hebrew prophets to the fathers, God spoke. And so then he says, let me contrast those days with these days. But in the last days, the last days which begin with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, in these last days, God has spoken in Son. In Son. Here, we have the writer of Hebrews depicts God's word as God's climactic word in the sun. Here in the last days, God has spoken in sun revelation. And the concept sun, as it appears in the text, without the article, the, it doesn't say the Son. It simply says, God has in these last days spoken by Son. The climactic word of God, the climactic revelation to mankind. It says everything that there is to be said about those who proclaim that they speak in the name of God after Christ. For there can be no other climax after the climax. Climax of Revelation is Jesus Christ. You see, the writer refers to him as Son. Not only were the ancient, not only is the Son greater because the ancient prophets were merely men and, and merely prophets, but he is the Son. The writer uses that concept Son to draw attention to the reality that the one in whom God's climactic word has come is far greater than mere prophets, but that he himself is God incarnate. 
the second person of the Trinity. He is God's revelation. And it is not that he comes and speaks on God's behalf, as the prophets did. He speaks as God, because he's Son, the Son of God. Now the writer, in order to establish this divine one in whom God's revelation is now climaxed, will give us seven descriptions of the Son. And by the way, I am reading from the New King James Version, so you may notice the difference in your text. But the writer goes on to describe him. And he tells us that the one through whom God speaks is God's appointed heir. He owns it all. Now, when we think of heirs, we, we think that um, you know, somebody has to die, right? If you have children and they are your heirs in your will, they're not going to get what you have been saving for all these years just by wishing it away. You know, wishing it comes to them. You've got to die before they inherit. When, when the Bible calls the Lord heir, it doesn't mean that the father is somehow going to die. It simply means that he is the possessor. He possesses with the father all things. The scriptures goes on to describe him as the agent of creation through whom God made the world. This stunningly beautiful world as we saw pictures for instance in the at least by the James Webb telescope of this magnificent complex and beautiful creation the writer says through him he made the world and it makes third an ontological statement a statement about the very being of the son who brings revelation and describes him as the brilliance, the effulgence, the intense brightness of God's glory, the exact character of God's being. And that term, character, refers to the reality that he's the very stamp of God, all that may be positive of God, everything that we may say of the Father, whether the Father is eternal and all-powerful and gracious, Whatever may be said of the Father can be said of the Son. He has come and he is the very character of God. Fully God. And that is why the Nicene Creed would go on to describe him as light of light. God of God. Fully God. In every way. He goes on to describe him as the one who upholds the universe. And there the term Pharaoh means not merely that the Son through whom revelation comes bears the world along, but it means that he carries it to its ultimate conclusion. That's the term that's used of Paul when he was on the ship. You remember how he was having difficulty on his way to Rome and he talks about the ship being driven by the wind. Well, that is what the term here means. He's the one who not only sustains the world, he carries the world to its ultimate purpose. The scriptures goes on to describe him further as the one who made purifications for sin. The one who died and by whose blood our sins have been purged. You see, this is the one by whom revelation has come. And then he closes, he says, at least 
at the high point of the career, this panoply of Christ. He says, he sat down at the right hand of majesty and makes clear. He cuts out the resurrection and the exaltation. He goes directly to the session of Christ, who's been raised from the dead and sat down. Why? Because the work of salvation is complete. And he sat down at the right hand of God, metaphorical language, meaning the highest place, the place of all authority and dignity and power in the universe. Jesus sits there and reigns. And he goes on in verse 4 to say, and he has received a name that is better than other names. What's the name? It's the Son. His Son. Yes, he had that name from eternity. But his resurrection from the dead, as we saw in Romans 1, that resurrection vindicates him as the son. Doesn't make him son, vindicates him as son. My friends, God's word climactically revealed in the son. And these seven descriptions are not exhaustive. Nevertheless, they stress the son's transcendent dignity and his redemptive efficacy and so the unit this unit here in chapter one as it speaks about revelation in the son makes us understand that in him all authority and glory are to be found it also means that the one through whom revelation has come and its climax should be worshipped and so i the canadian hymn writer at least the canadian who wrote the hymn Jesus, wondrous Savior, Christ of King the Kings, angels fall before him, worshiping. Fairest they confess thee, in the heaven above, we will sing thee fairest, therein hymns of love. This exalted Christ must be worshiped and must be heard. You remember when our Lord was transfigured, the word that came from God was hear him. But in Hebrews, we not only see God's climactic word in the Son, we see God's dynamic word in the gospel. Whatever we think of God's word, it is not only a climactically revealed in the Son, but it is God's dynamic word. It is his climactic word. It is a dynamic word. And by dynamic, I'm simply referring to the word of God that has power, that is alive. One of the most evocative, moving speeches, of course, came from Anthony in Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar recognized the power of human word. And you remember that after Caesar was assassinated by Brutus and co-conspirators, Anthony began, friends, Roman countrymen, lend me your ears. I've come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. If you remember you, what happens after that, he does exactly the opposite of what he pretends that he would not do. He goes about praising Caesar. And you have this ironic refrain, you know, Brutus says Caesar is ambitious, and, and, and Brutus is an honorable man. And over and over you hear that refrain. Brutus says Caesar is ambitious, but Brutus is an honorable man. And he goes on to deconstruct the fact that Caesar was ambitious. He talks about how Caesar 
cared for Rome. He didn't take glory for himself. How Caesar was compassionate when people cried. He wept with them. And he goes on to explain how Caesar, when he was presented a throne or presented a crown three times, rejected it. And when he pretends to find Caesar's will, people are crying, the will, the will, we, we, we will hear the will. He begins to read the will, how Caesar hath left money for every citizen of Rome. And how his private gardens are given to the people and their generation for public parks to enjoy. The people were enraged at the conspirators and they rushed out to burn them, moved by Anthony's speech. We know the power of words, the evocative power of words. But if human words are powerful, how much more the word of God? We see the power of God's word in Hebrews. We see the dynamic quality of that word, not only climactically revealed in the Son, but dynamically revealed in the gospel. And there are three ways, I want to be quick there, but there are three ways in which this dynamic word that has come from the Son and passed to the apostles is revealed in Hebrews. First of all, this dynamic word is revealed in salvation. This is why it was good in our reading that we read to chapter 2, 1 to 4. Because there, the writer stresses and tells them that they ought to pay careful attention to what they had heard. And he wants them to pay careful attention to the word, lest they drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, then he, against all transgressions, he will go on to say, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation in verse 2? Well, in verse 3, well, how shall we escape so great a salvation? He says, be careful, you, you drift away. Years ago, and we were in one of the Caribbean islands, and, and as we drove along the road from the airport, we were surprised to see on the beaches all these boats, prior, hitherto, magnificent boats, like, like, like beached whales just dotting the, the, the beaches. They had come across from Europe. Some of them had blown off the coast of Africa and had landed in these Caribbean, on these Caribbean islands. They had lost their moorings. And the writer says we must pay careful attention. Careful attention lest we lose our moorings. And he says... How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You see, the message, this, this dynamic word, is a message that they had heard, a message of salvation. And the rest of chapter 2, as it reflects upon Psalm 8, begins to flesh out this word, this dynamic word revealed in salvation. It reveals how the Son of God has come to taste death for everyone. How? He became and came as the pioneer, the archegos of salvation. It continues to speak of him as who was perfected through sufferings or qualified vocationally through his suffering. The one who was not ashamed to identify with us. Wasn't ashamed to call us brothers 
and sisters. The one who has come to deliver us from Satan's dominion, and not only from Satan's dominion, but the fear of death. And then there, in verse 17 of chapter 2, it depicts him as a sympathetic high priest. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This word, this dynamic word, it's a word of salvation. And this salvation has been revealed in the coming of Jesus Christ, who has come to propitiate, that is to remove God's anger, who took God's anger upon himself, who appeased God on our behalf. The rest of Hebrews will flesh out this salvation, this dynamic word of salvation. The, the upshot of this salvation is eternal salvation, eternal redemption. It results in sanctification, or the writer of Hebrews will call perfection, that is qualification to enter into the presence of God. It gives us access to the new heavens that he calls Mount Zion unto the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels unto the general assembly of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. And to God the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than the blood of angels. What I'm saying is we have in Hebrews the climactic word of God revealed in the Son. But we have the dynamic word of God revealed in salvation. In chapter 9 of Hebrews, we recognize that this salvation has come at a high cost. That it came through the once for all death of Christ on the cross. He did away with the entire Old Testament system because none of those sacrifices on Yom Kippur the day of atonement, none of those sacrifices could remove sins. And Jesus offered one sacrifice for sin. Why? Because it was acceptable. It was a perfect sacrifice. And so we are saved by the one sacrifice of Christ. Well, you see, Hebrew talks about this dynamic word revealed in salvation. The dynamic word is also revealed not only in salvation, but in, in what we would call admonition. If you go back to chapter 2, you must pay careful attention to what you have heard, lest you drift away. Hebrews, in fact, has five blocks of warning not to drift, not to turn away. And these admonitions run through the epistle. One of the sternness of them occurs in chapter 3 to chapter 4, where... In quoting Psalm 95, the, the writer tells them today, in verse 7, he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He calls upon them. Do not harden your hearts. And this call not to harden their hearts is a call to faith. They're called to faith. They're called not to harden their heart. Look at what it writes in chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, 
do not harden your heart as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works and for 40 years. You see, the dynamic word of God, that word which moves us, is not only a word that saves us, it's not only salvific, it is a word that warns us. It warns against unbelief. The greatest sin we can commit is not to believe in God's Son. And he says, be careful, lest you drift. He says, today, the Spirit of God, who exhibits the power of God, speaks and warns us. Warns against rebellion. But what's the rebellion? It's unbelief. What was the particular sin of Israel? It wasn't simply idolatry. It sprang from unbelief. A refusal to trust in God. And then it led to immorality and, of course, idolatry and so on. There's a warning there. Why? Because God's word is powerful. As I mentioned in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 12, he says, here's the reason why you must heed the warnings. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and to the, of joints and marrow, and the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. It's not, the, the text is not teaching that human beings consist of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. The Bible presents us as, as a unity. But he's arguing that the word of God is powerful. He, he describes it. He says it's alive. And it is active. And it penetrates. It's a penetrating word. So that he's able to discern even the very recesses of our hearts. The place of thinking and reflection and willing and desiring. The word of God is able to search us even at the core of our being. And so you see, to stand before God's word is to stand before God himself, the searching God. But the power of God's word is revealed not only, or the dynamic quality of the word is revealed not only in salvation and in admonition, but in exhortation. In chapter 13, verse 22, the apostle says, I write to you this word of exhortation. And generally, the word is one of, uh, of encouragement. And throughout Hebrews, there are encouragements. After encouragement, one thinks, for instance, after chapter 6, after this very searing word from God to the congregation, to remain faithful, he reminds them of Abraham. How God in his faithfulness spoke to Abraham. And how God promised him a numberless descendant. And for 25 years, nothing happened. But God, who had given his word, kept his word. He said he confirmed it by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. God confirmed his word by promise and by an oath. And the writer reminds us that this word of God because of his faithfulness, we may trust in him that our hope is like an anchor which is anchored in heaven because it's, it's dependent upon the faithful character of God. Very quickly in chapter 8, for instance, he reminds us that God has spoken his word of exhortation or encouragement in the new covenant to give us a new heart with his word written in our hearts. And the apex of that blessing is forgiveness of sin. Well, exhortation comes 
Further, we see this dynamic word of exhortation revealed further in chapter 13. It's revealed in exhortation and encouragement where in chapter 13, after he tells believers to flee from covetousness, he reminds them of this reality. He says this, and be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So you may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. What will I fear? What can man do to me? He quotes the Old Testament text. And there he reminds them. They ought not to be worried for whatever their needs, whatever resources they lack. They have the assurance of God. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Therefore, we will not fear. You see, all of these are encouragements. And so in Hebrews, you see then the climactic word of God revealing the Son. You see the dynamic word of God revealed in salvation, in admonition, and in exhortation. But I want to, before I just make three concluding remarks, say that you see God's word in Hebrews not only as his climactic word revealing the Son, not only as a dynamic word, but you see it as the specific word. It's addressed to us. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 1, it says, In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. It is John Calvin who says that the speaking of God is not merely words being blurted out in the air. The word of God is the wisdom of God revealed, but it remains in God. And it's addressed to us. It's addressed to us as a covenant people and as a pilgrim generation. It's addressed to us as the wandering people of God who are on their way to glory, to the new heavens, to the city that has foundation, whose maker and builder is God. What must we do with this word of God? I would suggest to you that the word of God revealed in Jesus tells us that we must consider him. We hear that refrain in Hebrews, by the way, consider him. And you and I must consider Christ. We live in a generation where there are many things that are upsetting. When we think of the immorality around us, when we think of high prices in the grocery stores, all around us, and fear, for instance, of greater inflation and even recession in the new year, all of these can distract us. They can weigh us down. But in this day and age, the Word of God must be central. And the Word of God directs us to consider Christ. To consider Christ. It was the, the, the English churchman, C.D.F. Moe, who says that, that Hebrews does not tell us to consider Christ after other things, but to consider him first. And you and I are led to consider Christ who is the pre-existent Son of God, who is the incarnate Son of God. And we are to consider Christ, who is the exalted Son of God. We must consider Him. In all of our turbulence and confusing days, we must look up and look away and look to Christ. And we must see Him in His grandeur and in His beauty. And we must embrace Him. We must look to Christ. Dr. Adams, who taught me Old Testament theology at Toronto Baptist Seminary, used to say to us as students, look to Christ. And I say to us and to my own heart, in an age of great turbulence, 
and great strife and great hardship, Hebrews lifts up Christ and directs us to gaze upon him. And when you are bowed down, if you are to be buoyed, if you are to be heartened, if you are to be lifted up, you must see the exalted Christ. Because when you see him, you begin to be transformed into his image. Stephen, when he saw the glorified Christ, his face began to change. You need to know that in Christ, Moore tells us we have two great things. Hebrew tells us we have a high priest in heaven on our, on our account, and we have an altar in chapter 13. An altar, a sacrifice for our sins. So we must consider Christ, fix our gaze upon him. But because God has spoken, we must be a listening people. It means that we must read the word of God. We must attend to the word preached through our pastors. We must hear God's word. It's life, it's health. It is our meat and our drink. I know that many of our younger people today, not here, but at least in our world, like to binge, binge watch their favorite shows. You and I must binge, read scripture and fill our minds with the truth of God and go deeper and deeper into the ocean and depth of the, of the divine revelation that we may be built up and transformed. We must be a listening people, reading the Bible personally, hearing the Bible proclaimed, and yes, even some of you studying its great truth. You see, if you are going to have pearls, you have to go deep. And finally, my dear friends, may God's word satisfy you. It points you to Jesus, apart from whom there is no joy nor life. It brings to us the mind and revelation of God. So Calvin says, not only must we treat God with word with reverence, but it must satisfy us. It alone must satisfy us. May God help us, for Christ's sake. Amen.